we're all good now. Fantastic. We are going to have a lot of fun. All right, turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 15. Let's keep moving. This is what I get. Luke chapter 15. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 7 this morning as we start this new year. Next week we will be starting in Romans. Uh, Next week we'll be starting in Romans. um, And we'll be looking at that wonderful letter for uh, the next several months. But before we get into that, uh, my, my hope is, is that we can look at what, as I talked with the kids, or tried to, um, what delights God. Before we get into our scripture, though, uh, I've probably told this story before, and certainly some of you have heard it, but I can remember, um, and she's left, so it's good that I share this now. Um, I remember our first summer of marriage, um, Melissa... Um, started joining me in one of the things that delights me, and which is baseball. And I can remember one time we were sitting um, with some friends, and Melissa was sitting next to me, and my friend was sitting on the other side, and we were enjoying this game, and there was a double play. And Melissa, somewhat excitedly, says, that was a 6-4-3, which is the positional numbers of baseball. And she knew them, and she knew the play and described it accurately. And I can remember my friend sitting on the other side of me leaning over with just like awe in his face and saying, where did you find her? That, my friend, I had to go all the way to Africa. You see, it's not just that Melissa, who was not really a baseball fan before we were married, it's not just that she wanted to do things with me. It's that she wanted to like the same things I liked. So she began to ask questions, and she began to get involved, and she wanted to know, like, when I would score, and I, or I would say those, those random positional numbers, that she wanted to know why I was doing that, and she learned them herself, and she got invested in it, in something that she was not herself passionate about. Why did she do that? She did that because she, for some reason, likes me, and she wanted to have something that we could enjoy together, and really, that's the way it happens in in all relationships, or that should, that there should be an investment towards one another that we begin to find out what the other person likes and what they delight in and what makes them happy. And we, we begin to change some of ourself a little bit that we would join them in those things. It should be the same way when we come to our Lord. That we would love him in such a way that our delights, that our desires would begin to change so that we can join him where he delights and what he desires so that the relationship becomes stronger. And so this morning, what we're going to look at in Luke chapter 1 through 7 is we're going to look at just one part of what God delights in and how we can join him in that. So if you would, please stand with me as we read God's Word together. Luke chapter 15, starting in verse 1. It says, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he lost one of them, 
does not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it. And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Let's pray. Father, we come before you. We come before your word in awe. As we talked about this morning, as we looked at an introduction to Romans, Lord, we are in awe that a holy, righteous, just God would seek reconciliation with sinners found guilty. That we would have such amazing joy and amazing celebration that we have the opportunity, that we have the reality of knowing the creator of the universe who walks with us, who desires to speak with us, who desires to, for us to know him, Lord, that we would be in awe of those things, that we would be excited about those things. Father, that we would see what delights you and that we would want to join in that. Father, I pray. Lord, help us to hear your heart, your word this morning. We pray this in the beautiful name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. The scene that we are presented with here in Luke chapter 15 is um, not necessarily a unique one. As you go through the Gospels, you're going to find lots of times that people are gathered together um, to be with Jesus, to be around Jesus. Um, and so certainly this, uh, this scene is no uh, exception, or it is the uh, reality of how Jesus did ministry. Um, we see lots of, like I said, we see lots of times when they gather together, even Zacchaeus, probably one of the most famous times, Zacchaeus who climbs a tree so that he may see Jesus. And so we, what we see is not unusual. This is the normal heart. This is the normal desire of Christ. And as we look at the scenes, we see this scene, we see a couple things. First, we see Jesus and sinners. We see Jesus and sinners. We see first that, that sinners feel welcome. Sinners feel welcome with Jesus. They, it seems to be that as they came to him, they wanted to be around him, that there was something that was attractive about being in his presence. And so they, they flocked to him sometimes in droves so that they may just touch the hem of his garment. They may listen just a, a word from his mouth, that they may be in just the, the proximity to him. So we see these sinners who feel welcome. We see these sinners who came to Jesus it's not just that they felt welcome, it's that they continued to come over and over and over again. Again, we see, like I said, this is not a, a one-time thing that happens in the gospel. This is a regular basis that those that are on the outsides of society, those that are marginalized by everyone else, the common man even, that he desires to come and to participate in life with Jesus. 
And it's because they're seeking something. These sinners, these tax collectors, they're seeking something. They may not be able to put their finger on it, per se. They might not be able to say, this is exactly what is there. They're not maybe able to describe why they keep coming back to Jesus and what it is about his words that seems so intriguing. But for some of them, they make the realization that Jesus provides life. Jesus would talk about, come to me, you who are heavy laden, you that carry a heavy burden, come to me, for my yoke is light. He would say things like, I come to give life and give life abundantly. Now, it doesn't mean that he accepted everyone in the sense that he said that their sins didn't matter. No, he called people to repentance, but there was something about the way that he said it and the the heart behind it that people knew that what he was asking them to do was for their good and that they may have something far beyond anything that they had ever experienced before. Now, these folks that came, we've already said, they were tax collectors and sinners. Tax collectors are pretty easy to identify. They're those individuals that the Roman government had hired to collect the taxes for government. Some of those individuals would have been Jewish by birth, and so those that that were, were often seen as traitors. They were seen by their fellow countrymen as those who had turned their back on the rest of the Jewish nation that they may serve a Roman master. And so they were hated for that. But it wasn't just that they were hated for being traitors, that they often, as a, as a group, were found to be dishonest. The government would say that, let's say, Clint owes $50 in taxes, and the tax collector would come and say, Clint, you owe me 100 And there was nothing you could do about it. There was no way for you to argue that point. And so they built great amount of wealth on the common man out of deception and deceit and coercion. And so again, they were seen as, as not good people. And often they were excluded from the rest of society when society would get together and and to welcome one another and to celebrate one another. Often tax collectors were on the outside looking in. Tax collectors' friends were other tax collectors. In the same way, the sinners, that's a little bit harder to define, but certainly these were the folks that the rest of society had decided had done things beyond what was acceptable. These were Jewish folks that didn't follow Jewish customs. Maybe they didn't follow the dietary restrictions. These were adulterers or adulteresses. These were murderers or thieves. Or maybe they were those that just were a little different. But for whatever reason, they had been pushed out. And yet they were the ones that felt welcome in his midst. They were the ones that came seeking what he was offering. But there's another group here as well. There are those who grumbled. There are those who grumbled. And not just a little, but a lot. It says in verse 2, And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. Now that phrase, eats with them, we should pause and, and take just a moment to understand that that is not something to gloss over. When it says that he ate with them, that means he had a relationship with these folks. 
The Pharisees and the scribes would have had no problem with Jesus preaching to, or maybe more accurately, preaching at tax collectors and sinners. They themselves would preach at tax collectors and sinners. Heaven knows that tax collectors and sinners need to hear about God, that they need to hear about repentance. But there's a difference between preaching at someone or even to someone and eating with them. There's a difference in having a meal and sitting around a table to sharing stories about life and things that have happened to enjoying one another's company. That's a whole different level. And that made these folks, these Pharisees and scribes, incredibly uncomfortable. And they began to grumble. They began to grumble because they looked at appearances. They looked at Jesus eating with these individuals, eating with tax collectors and sinners, and they made the assumption that because he ate with them, that he approved of their lifestyle. In the world that we live in right now, we really struggle with this idea of if you don't accept what I do, if you don't approve of what I do, then you don't love me. That if you love me, then you'll, you'll accept everything I do and you'll agree with everything that I say. That's not a new, that's not a new thing. <laughs> the, the scribes and the Pharisees are looking at what Jesus is doing as he eats with these people and he says, well, he must approve of what they're doing. He must accept them and their actions. And so they're looking at appearances of, man, how could you do that? How could you eat with them? How could you share a table with them? So they're looking at appearances. They're making judgments. And these judgments are based on things that sometimes aren't even biblical. The Pharisees and the scribes had created this whole extra system of, of culture and society and, and rules that Jesus himself looks at the Pharisees at one point and says, you put a great burden on other people's back, but you have no desire to carry it on your own. And so he, they are looking at these things, and they're like, well, these people aren't living up to our standards. They're not passing the litmus test of faith that we ourselves have instituted, and therefore they are not worthy of our compassion. They are not worthy of our mercy. They are not worthy of our presence. And so they're excluded. We're, we're going to back away from them. Before we condemn the Pharisees and scribes too much, we must admit that as Southern Baptists, we have been very good at creating litmus tests of our own that are not always found in Scripture, both for those inside the faith circle, for those outside of it, for our politicians, to say, well, if they agree with such and such, then they must be a believer. Well, if they are voting that way, then they must be a believer. Or if they're voting that way, well, then how can they be a follower of Christ? We've created a litmus test and said, this is what it means to be a believer. But when we hold that litmus test up to Scripture, what we find is it's lacking. It's missing. We have to be careful when we judge others based on things that we have decided is what constitutes being a believer, what we have decided constitutes being a good follower of Christ, lest we too be like the Pharisees and the scribes who heap burdens upon other people that we ourselves don't want to carry. So they were looking at appearances, they were making judgments, but, and the third thing is they were delighting in themselves. They were delighting in themselves. I don't know, uh, I don't know how much time you've spent playing with a young child, but that's my life now. 
And it's interesting that when you play with a young child, they love playing games and, and doing pretend things, but they always do it on their terms. Like you'll be playing the game, like you'll be doing a, a, a tea party, for instance, and you will think, well, we're at a tea party, and so I will serve the tea cakes, to which the response will be, what are you doing, Dad? Don't you know that the cucumber goes with that? What, what are you talking about, daughter? They love to make up their own rules and delight in their rules and their things. They don't want to do it the way you want to do it. They want to do it the way that they want to do it. And we as adults love to do the same things, right? We love to delight in the things that we love to delight in, and we love to make our own rules so that fits our lifestyle, even in our faith. Even in our faith, we love to delight in religion as human beings, but we love to build our own box of what that looks like. We love to pick and choose and say, I want a little from column A and a little from column B and a little from column C, but that, that verse right there, that doesn't fit my delights. <laughs> that doesn't fit my desires, so we're just going to pretend that one doesn't exist. We're going to make that a lesser sin, not a major one. These folks love delighting in themselves. And so they had built this box of what it means to be a good religious person, of a good follower of God. And they looked at the appearances of everything on the outside and they made judgments against those that didn't fit in their box. And they continued just to enjoy their little holy bubble. Jesus does an interesting thing. Jesus could have spoken very harshly and said, you people just don't get it. <laughs> he could have been very confrontational with them. But you know what he does instead? What Jesus does instead of being confrontational with these Pharisees and scribes and condemning them and, and casting judgment rightly upon them, what he does instead is he desires to invite them to see the delight and the desire of God. He invites them to join in. He does so by telling, in Luke chapter 15, three different parables. He tells the parable of the lost sheep, which we read earlier. He tells the parable of a lost coin. And then he tells probably Jesus' most famous parable, excuse me, the story, the parable of the prodigal son. All three of these parables, all three of these stories are meant to help the Pharisees and the scribes identify the heart of God and for them to join Rather than push them away and say, you people don't get it, Jesus says, I want you to see God. I want you to see what he delights in so that you'll understand why I'm doing what I'm doing, why I'm eating with who I eat with, why I do ministry the way I do ministry. It's not a judgment, it's an invitation. And so all three of these stories begin to tell us about the delight of God. The first delight of God that, we're, that we see is that he delights in the lost to be found. Whether it's the, share, the parable of the sheep, where one has wandered away and then the shepherd goes out and finds and brings it back, or whether it be the lost coin, where the woman tears her house apart and cleans every nook and cranny until she finds that one that has been missing, or whether it's the prodigal son who takes 
his inheritance early and then goes and wastes it on any pleasure that he can think of only to realize his mistake and to return to the Father. What we see in all of these stories is that there is great joy and great delight in heaven over finding what was lost. God delights in the lost being found. And every single one of us can can raise our hand and acknowledge that at one time we were the lost. If we were to go around and, and share our story of God, how God has intervened in our life, every single one of them would have a part. We may not say it specifically like this, but every single one of them would have a part where we would say, God found me. For some of us, it was when we were young children and we were sitting on the laps of grandparents and Sunday school teachers and parents and God found us in that young age and did an amazing thing in the heart of a child that he can believe and accept grace by faith and alter the entire existence of our life. For some of us, it was when we were in youth group and somebody invited us to some shenanigans with pizza and a movie and we were not seeking God whatsoever, but He found us in that moment. Some of us, it was in college when we realized that the faith of our parents needed to be our faith. And we gave our lives to Him when He found us there. Some of us were adults and we were at rock bottom And God found us when we were not looking for him. He delights in finding the lost. He pursues you to every degree, to the point of dying on the cross and going through the resurrection for us who had wandered away. He he delights in in the lost being found. He delights and the sinner who repents. It's interesting when you read the end of the parable of the lost sheep, it says in verse 7, just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Going down to the parable of the lost coin in verse 10, just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Even in the story of the prodigal son, you run over to... Verse 22, it says, But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fatted calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. God delights in the lost to be found and he delights for the sinner to repent. We understand repentance, but just as a reminder, repentance is simply when we find ourselves following our own path. We have told God, I don't need you anymore. I don't need your instruction anymore. And we begin to follow our own way and make our own decisions. But God finds us. He opens our eyes and we realize if I continue to head this direction, it leads to nothing but death and destruction. It leads to separation and condemnation because I have rejected a holy God and committed treason. Repentance is our realizing of that, asking for forgiveness of that, 
and turning around and saying, I want to follow him. I want to live life by the one who created it. I want to be a servant of the king. And we begin to follow in his direction. And what we find is life and fulfillment and satisfaction in abundance. That's repentance. Jesus delights in seeing sinners who are walking one way turn and walk the other. He delights in them finding life. But in order to do that, what do you got to do? You got to rub shoulders with those that are lost, with those that need repentance. You got to talk with people that are not there yet in order for that to happen. And so Jesus focuses his ministry on those individuals. He delights in the lost being found. He delights in the sinner to repent. And he delights that the perishing to have life. We go back to the parable of the son, the prodigal son. This young man who thought he knew what life was all about. And what one of us hasn't thought that at one point or the other? I was talking with a friend of mine the other day, and we were kind of half joking, half not, that it's remarkable that God allows us to make all the big decisions of life between 20 and 30 when we are really dumb. Like, we think we know life. We think we're adults. We think we're mature. But what we find is it's like, man, all of the big things, it's like between 18 and 25, we make a lot of big decisions in that moment. This young man thought he knew everything. And so he goes to his dad and he says, I want my inheritance now. I want all the... I want all the things that are coming to me now because I know better than you do how to, how to use those. And he takes it all and he goes to a foreign country and he lives a lavish lifestyle. He, delight, he delights in himself and whatever he wants. Of course, the outcome of that story is he loses everything. A famine comes and he finds himself working on a pig farm, eating what the pigs eat being in the slop right with them. And he comes to his senses and he thinks, man, I, I got to go home. <laughs> dad, dad was better than this. And he comes home and, and along the way, he does what we all do when we come home, right? He begins to prepare what he's going to say. <laughs> it's like, dad, I know I've screwed up. Like I was telling somebody the other day, uh, the, we were talking about hitting deer and I was telling somebody the other day about dad had just bought a new to him pickup and it was, it was shiny and it was nice. And I wanted to go take my date out for a special night. So I asked dad if I could use the truck. And on the way home, I hit a deer and just destroyed the front end. And I'm telling one of the good stories. Yeah. <clears throat> Nobody faults somebody for hitting a deer. I'm not going to tell you the stories where I was absolutely at fault. I hit a deer, and I can remember driving, driving to the church parking lot, and, and that's, we were going to meet there, and some things going on, and, and I remember going, that, that drive, which was maybe a quarter of a mile, was the longest quarter of a mile in my life. And I'm like, trying to tell, how am I going to tell dad about this? He's going to kill me. That's what this young man's doing. He's going home, and he's like, man, I'm going to tell dad this, and I'm going to tell dad this, and maybe if I'm lucky, he'll let me be a servant in his household. But what does the dad do? We just read it. 
It says, the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his hand, shoes on his feet, and bring the fattened calf to kill it. Let us eat and celebrate. Why? For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. Let's celebrate. The delight of God is seeing the lost found, the sinner to repent, and the perishing to have life. When we are in our sin, when we have rebelled against God and said, I'm going to do life my way, I don't need you, we commit treason against the Most High King, and that brings with it the death penalty. And the death, as described in Scripture, is not just physical death. It is the separation from God and everlasting torment. And God looks at that situation, He looks at us as walking dead, and His response is reconciliation. His response is not, you chose that. It's not, okay, walk your path. It's, let me die for you. We need, there is a way here. It's to celebrate when one comes home. Because when the lost are found, when the sinner repents, that individual goes from death to life, and that is reason to celebrate. This is what God delights in. This is what he desires, and he's sharing, that with, he's sharing that with these scribes and these Pharisees, and he's trying to get them to understand, and this morning he's trying to get us to understand as well. This is what I want. This is what I desire. You want to know what to get God for Christmas? This is a pretty good idea. This is what it is. And so he gives us an invitation to join him. He gives, it's the same invitation he gives the Pharisees and the scribes to join him in this, this mission to find the lost, to see the, the, re, the sinner to repent, to see the dead be brought to life. He invites us to join, but that means a couple of things. It means finding delight outside of ourselves. If you want to have a good relationship with an individual, a healthy relationship with another individual, you've got to stop looking at yourself and you've got to start looking to them and saying, what do you delight in? Let's do some of your things. In the same way, when we come, John tells us in his letter, when if we want to know that we love God, then we're going to obey him. We're going to follow him. We're going to delight in the things that he delights in. So we've got to, that means we've got to change some things. When Melissa and I started dating, when we got married, there are some things in my schedule that had to go away. There are some things that I had to mature in. There are some things that, that needed to change, that I wanted to change because I wanted this to work because I loved her. In the same way, we need to ask ourselves, if we're going to proclaim ourselves to be believers and to be Christians, we must ask ourselves, what needs to change? Do I delight in the things that he delights in rather than just delighting in myself? And by the way, a good way to do that, look at your schedule. What do you spend your time doing? And why do you do it? Is it so that you might bring delight to yourself alone, or is it that you might delight in what he delights in? It may be that our schedules need to change. Maybe that a mentality needs to change. It's not just, though, that he invites us to find delight outside of ourselves, but it also means proximity, but not approximation. Now, let me unpack that just briefly. Jesus has the desire and delights in seeing the lost found and seeing the sinner repent and seeing life being brought to the dead. And in order for that to happen, he must have proximity 
to lost people. He must eat with them. He must fellowship with them. He must have relationships with them. It can't be just preaching at them. It has to be more, it's more than that to him. So he has proximity with them. We must, if we desire what God desires, we must learn to have proximity with people outside of our holy bubble. To be where they are, to have them into our homes, to fellowship with them, to speak with them, to share our story with them and be willing to listen to their story in return. We must have proximity to them. But we must not be careful not to slip into approximation. What I mean by that is Jesus has meals and, and hangs out with tax collectors, but he doesn't become a tax collector. Jesus hangs out and, and has even, dare I say, fun with sinners, but he doesn't become a sinner in the process. Brothers and sisters, we must learn to have proximity with those that do not yet know Christ, but be careful not to approximate to them, to not take on their sin into our own life. This is why, by the way, we do this in pairs. God sends, Jesus sends his people out, his disciples out in pairs. It's, it's for accountability in part so that we can make sure, hey, hey, remember, this is the way we're going. This is what we're supposed to look like. We're to look different in their midst that's going to feel weird. That's going to feel strange. That's going to be uncomfortable. For some people, it's going to even be offensive. But yet we look to the, we look to the example of Christ, and what we find is he was different. To some, he was offensive, and yet many flocked to him because he had life. If we will live in proximity to those that are lost, Yes, there will be some that are turned away, but there will be some who find him. There will be some that find life. So let us let's figure out what that looks like and how we can do that. How we can join in this invitation to delight in what God delights in. So what's ahead? What's ahead then? Where do we go? If we understand that the delight of God is to see these things happen and we have an invitation from Him to join in, then what shall we do now? Well, first, we must evaluate ourselves. We must take stock of who we are. This is a great time of year to do this. We all do this, right? At a new, as a new year comes in, we begin to take stock of our lives and what's going on, and some of us will make resolutions and so on and so forth. This is a great time for us to really take evaluation of what we delight in. Do we delight in the things that He delights in? Do our schedules reflect that? Do our resources reflect that? Do how we use our gifts and our talents, do they reflect in our delight in God and our delight in what He desires? means we must evaluate ourselves as a church as well, right? To look at the ministries and the things that we do and ask ourselves, why do we do them? How do we do them? And is it for what God delights in that we may join him there? We must evaluate our mission field. It is no accident that this church has been placed on this street corner in this community at this time. He has given us a mission field called Vandalia. 
We must evaluate what that looks like. I want to share with you a picture. You may not be able to see it super clear right now, but kind of describe what you're looking at. Some of you may know if you've looked at it, but that is a map of Vandalia. This map, by the way, actually sits on the other side of that wall. Alan Shaw made this for me when I first got here. Um, there's actually a second map that goes with it that is a map of our surrounding area. And on this map, you can see there's little pins and little pieces of paper and each one of those pins and each one of those pieces of paper represents a member of our church and where they live. Now, again, there's another one that's for the area, and there's other pins and other names. But I, I always have kind of three emotions when I look at this map. One of them is great joy. Because I see names on this map, many of you who are sitting here, and I am thankful for the names that are represented. And I get excited, and I pray for you, and I pray for the names that are represented, that the Lord would continue to work in your life. And I'm thankful for the the ministry that's already been done so that these names can be here. There's a second emotion too, though, a second feeling that rises. Because some of the names on those pieces of paper, and some of the names that are pinned on that wall, I have never seen in this building. And I don't mean the new one, I mean ever. In six and a half years here, I don't have a relationship with them. They say that they are our family, and we consider them family, but they've been apart from us for a long time. And my heart breaks. And I pray for them as well. But as I look at what God invites us to do, as He says that the lost must be found, I'm reminded that I've got to do more than just pray. And it's going to take more than just me to talk to our brothers and sisters who call themselves our family but haven't been here to say, we want you back. There's another thing that goes through Another thing that goes through my mind, though, as I look at this map, you can see, um, you know, you have 54 kind of going from right to left there, and you have Main Street going up and down, more or less, and it kind of divides Vandalia into four quadrants, so to speak. And you look north of, uh, above 54, and there are a lot of pens, and there are a lot of pieces of paper to the point where you can't even hardly read each individual one. Like, you kind of got to look. When I first got here, it was really funny. Like, I would be like, okay, I need to go to Susie's house. Let me figure out where that is. And I would try to look on this map, and I'm like peeling back pens and trying to figure. It was just so dense, I couldn't figure it out. And that's cool. And if you look to the right of Main Street, there's a lot of pens there too, right? Maybe not quite as dense as north, but There's a lot of pins and a lot of names there. But when you look to the south of 54 and to the west of Main Street, there aren't very many pins. And some of those pins, honestly, I need to take off. One of them uh, is a member that passed away a little bit ago, and I just can't, I haven't had it in my heart yet to pull that pin. But there aren't very many pins in that quadrant. And if you drive through that neighborhood, it's not because people don't live there. There are a lot of names represented 
in that quadrant. There are a lot of families represented in that quadrant. We have a mission field. Now, there's some historical reasons, Southside being one of them, that we, that church was planted to reach that quadrant. There's other things going on there. But brothers and sisters, we have a mission field. There are lost that need to be found. There are sinners that need to repent. There are walking dead that need life. We have an invitation from our Lord and Savior to delight in what He delights in. We must not only evaluate ourselves and evaluate our mission field, but we must evaluate our obedience. If we say that we love Him, then we will obey Him. We have been given His heart. We have been saved ourselves. We have been given a mission. How are we doing? What do we desire? Brothers and sisters, as we start a new year, as we come to this new blank sheet in front of us, our Lord and Savior puts forth, this is what I love. This is what I desire. The Pharisees and scribes heard that, and many of them, not all of them, but many of them looked at that and said, I don't desire that. I'm going to do my own thing. And they walked away from him. Brothers and sisters, what will we do this morning? Will we hear the desire and will we follow him? Or will we hear his desires and say, "Mm, that's not for me. I'll just keep doing things my own way. We have a choice this morning. I'm going to ask the praise team to come back up and we're just going to have a time to respond to the word of God. Maybe you're here this morning and you have never, never followed him. You would say, I I live life my own way. And I've always done it that way. And this morning you realize that he loves you, that he has pursued you. This morning, I would just encourage you to come before him, just to pray to him, simply talk to him and say, I understand that I've been going the wrong way. Please forgive me. I believe that you died for my sins and I want to follow you. I promise you this morning, you will know the delight and the desire of heaven. This morning, maybe you're a believer here and you would say, I know I'm a believer. I know that he has found me. I know that I am his. But somewhere along the way, I lost the script. Somewhere well along the way, I have started to desire my things again more than his things. And you would say, I want to be back on that page. I want to desire him. This morning, would you just make that commitment? Would you say, hey, this year, I'm going to do everything I can. I am, and God, I am asking you to pour out your spirit that I may desire what you desire, that I may join you where you are. Would you do that this morning as well? Let's pray. Father, we come before you and we thank you for your word. We thank you that you desire the things that we desire. Only if we will delight in you first. Lord, that you desire for us to join with you 
in everything that you love, that we may experience life and experience it abundantly. Father, I pray that we would not hear this word this morning and let it go in one ear and out the other, but that we would hear this word this morning and that we would respond. Lord, that we would choose you over all other things. We pray this in the beautiful name of Jesus Christ. Amen.